0: Talking history. history on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, The Work of the British Legion and the Controversy over the Poppy, Northern Ireland's Century of Division, an ambush in Kerry during the War of Independence, How Napoleon Plundered Artworks All Around Europe, and then we'll end the show discussing a new novel based on the volatile true love story of literary icon Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. Last week we looked at the life and legacy of Frederick the Great and we explored the way his image has been reinvented over the centuries. So if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the British Legion. Formed in 1921 to provide welfare to soldiers returning from the First World War, the Royal British Legion is today the UK's leading military charity and this year it celebrates its centenary and a new book explores its story and its history it's called we are the legion the royal british legion at 100 it's published in hardback by profile editions and i'm delighted to welcome the author julie summers to the show tonight julie you're very we- you're very welcome Thank you very much indeed and good evening. Uh, Let's talk about the foundations. Let's go back a hundred years. Why was it founded? And talk to me about uh, the people behind it because it was a very young group of people who were uh, the real driving forces.
1: Indeed. Um, The first chairman was uh, in his 35th year, so he was 34 and a half, which if you think about organising, you know, an enormous organisation is quite a feat. So what happened during the last couple of years of the First World War was that People um, who returned to Britain had realised that the soldiers who were injured or had recovered were not getting the welfare that they needed from the government. And there was one group that was formed, whose motto was "Every man once before any man twice." So what was happening was that there were there were men who were coming back from um, abroad having sustained an injury, and they were then um, being treated, getting better, and being sent out to the front, and and the this organisation, one of the organisations, felt this was very unfair. Then there was another organisation that was set up to look after the widows and the orphans. So basically, there were four organisations who were all fighting on behalf of the soldiers. And Lord um, Lord Marshal hay had refused to get involved in any of the individual organisations. And he said, right from the get-go after the war, look, if you don't all get together, you do not have the clout. So there was a unity conference in 1920 and that ran for nearly nine months. And the big organizations all got together. They they were the um, Federation and the Association for the Protection of of, uh, Soldiers and so forth. And these four organizations got together. They banged heads with the opposite association and they formed in May 1921. There were 54 names proposed and the British Legion was chosen. Sadly, I've never found a list of what the other suggestions were. But... The treasurer was the same age as the chairman, so he was uh, in his 30s as well. He was an MP. And then, of course, you know, many of the men who'd come back had, had gone as young soldiers aged sort of 16, 17, 18. They were all in their early 20s. And I think that's something that we forget nowadays, that this, this young organisation had tremendous energy, and it was absolutely devoted to ensuring that the soldiers who came back and the widows and the orphans who were left behind really had an organisation to support them.
0: And of course, today the the Legion would be synonymous with the symbol of the poppy, but uh, what was fascinating to read was that uh, that might not have been the case. It might not have been accepted as as a symbol at the very start.
1: I know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? So The story of the poppy is that it was actually Influenced by the poem by the Canadian physician, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dr. John McRae, who wrote the In Flanders Field poem uh, in 1915. And it was an American woman, a woman called Mona Michael, who was fascinated by the poem and thought that the poppy as a symbol of remembrance would be very powerful. And at the same time in America, there was a French woman called Madame Anna Guérin, And she too um, met Mona Michael and agreed that the poppy was was, was a very powerful symbol because it grew spontaneously in the in the torn-up lands of uh, France and Belgium and further afield. And so Moina Michael concentrated on the United States and Madame Guerin was much more ambitious and she went to Western states in America with this idea of proposing the poppy as a symbol of remembrance and hope for a peaceful future. It has sort of to stick to it. Anyway, she was in Canada In 1921, she announced to the Canadians, who immediately, of course, adopted it because they were so proud of John McRae. She announced to the the Canadians that she was going to go to Britain at the invitation of the king. Well, I'm not ever sure if Buckingham Palace had issued an invitation. But nevertheless, she she went to London in September 1921, demanded an audience with the legion and proposed a poppy. And there was a sort of stunned silence from the finance committee when this was suggested to them. And they went, poppies? Who wants poppies? Who's Mona Michael? Who's, who's Madame Who Who is, you know, is she French? Is she genuine? You know, what, what's going on here? Can she produce the million poppies she's promised to produce in time for First Remembrance Day in November? And so they sent a man called Sir Herbert Brown out to Paris to check her out. And she turned out to be as good as gold. And she delivered a million poppies um, made by the orphans and widows in France. And that was the birth of the very first poppy appeal.
0: The poppy can be a some, somewhat contentious symbol on the island of Ireland, and there can also be controversy about people wearing it or not wearing it uh, during the month of November. Uh, what are your thoughts on some of these controversies, the fact that it sometimes can be a disputed symbol as well?
1: I think, the, well, in, in my submission, I think it's up to anybody whether they want to wear a poppy or not. And it went through a very bad patch in the 1970s when people were thinking that uh, the Legion was a warmongering organisation. And the Legion had great trouble convincing the general public that actually it has always stood for peace. And I think when there is controversy, um, the Legion simply stands back and says, it's up to you. You know, it, you, nobody is forced to wear a poppy and it is always happy to enter a dialogue and to explain its position, which is, which is a position of peace.
0: Quite fascinating work and really quite significant work in terms of supporting servicemen and women, helping to find jobs and housing, helping with injuries, helping with deal with the trauma of conflict, but also things like lobbying the government for some things like pensions, for leading the country in remembrance. That is, it doesn't just have one function or one role. It's it's actually all of these different roles and functions now.
2: When it
1: started, it had three functions. It was to care. For the servicemen who'd come back who were injured, wounded, um, mentally and physically. It had a care for the orphans and the widows. The second um, tenet was to lobby the government to make sure that they took responsibility. So it lobbied for pensions for the widows as well as for the soldiers themselves. It lobbied government to give servicemen who were injured, um, who were disabled, to give them the right to work and so forth. And then the third tenet of its sort of setup was to um, promote remembrance, and Lord Hague was very, very keen on this. He was absolutely insistent that remembrance was a vital and important part of the Legion's work. And and that's remained. Those three very strong tenets are exactly underpinning what the Legion does today, even though it's a smaller group of people that it looks after, and uh, obviously the needs of the armed services community has changed.
0: And, and also plays a major role when it comes to helping men and women injured and disabled as a result of their service. Uh, disability is a major uh, feature now.
1: It, it always was. Uh, it, it's a huge feature now because men come back or came back from Afghanistan, which was the last major conflict we were involved in, with, with seriously life-changing injuries. In, in the Second World War, if a man had, had sustained an injury and lost know more than one limb he probably would not have survived and certainly in the first world war he wouldn't have done but today the men and women who were injured in IED explosions or you know caught in, in in fire and sometimes lose poor things one two three limbs they they are they are able to get the help they need physically to get to have hospital treatment to have prosthetics made and so forth but then of course they've got to live with it and the legion is very good at understanding how important it is for a man or woman who's been active um, in service to come to grips with the fact that they no longer have the body that functions in the way it did um, before their injury. And, and that's something that they've really developed over the course of the century.
0: Okay, well, Julie, thanks so much for joining us tonight to talk about the centenary of the Royal British Legion and its work over the past 100 years. We are the Legion, the Royal British Legion at 100. The book is published in hardback by Profile Editions. The author, Julie Summers. And Julie, thanks so much for joining us.
1: It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.
0: We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking history, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book argues that partition has been an unmitigated disaster for nationalists and unionists alike in Northern Ireland. And it also shows how the actions of successive British governments have amounted to a masterclass in failed statecraft. The book is called What a Bloody Awful Country, Northern Ireland's Century of Division. It's published in hardback by Biteback Publishing and I'm delighted to welcome the author, Kevin Marr, to the show tonight. Kevin, you're very welcome. Thanks, Patrick. Can we begin with the brilliant title, What a Bloody Awful Country? Yeah. Uh, talk to us about the origins of that phrase.
2: <laughs> it does stand out, doesn't it? It's, it's a direct quotation from... Um, Reginald Maudling, who was Home Secretary in 1970, British Armed Secretary under Edward Heath, and he took over um, as Home Secretary, obviously, as events in the north were spiralling out of control um, from 69 from onwards. Um, and Maudling went over, He was a, a Tory hardliner, went over and met uh, with Unionists and with, with um, the Stormont Ministers, as were obviously in situ, um, and came away from a very, very kind of... Um, frazzled reception came back to Belfast Airport and said to an official um, for God's sake bring me a large scotch what a bloody awful country um, so I've taken the, I've taken the quotation from there because I think what it speaks of is a general British Westminster sense of malaise about Northern Ireland it's a, it's a it could be a million miles away from from Westminster in terms of um, British understanding of the nuances of Northern Ireland, the impact uh, British rulers had in the creation and the management of Northern Ireland as well. It's it's a kind of a secret history, I think I'd describe it as, um, for most British people. Their only real understanding of Northern Ireland is the troubles, the IRA, bombings, shootings, um, carnage, um, and the Good Friday Agreement. And that's pretty much it. So a lot of the nuance of how did we get to this point where this place just went up in flames, metaphorically and literally? How do we get to this point? That kind of that kind of pretty dismal twentieth-century history, which which you know many, many Irish um, listeners, of course, will be very familiar with, but the British are not. They really don't understand any of this. Um, and this this Northern Ireland thing just kind of just kind of swept across. Um, their TV screens um, for, for 30 years and, and this kind of dismal event after dismal event and, and, and all the rest of it. But there's never really any kind of critical thinking of what led to this, why did we end up here, um, what's our contribution to this as a problem, and also what's our contribution to resolving this issue for the long term.
0: There's been a lot of debate and even a lot of controversy about how the centenary of Northern Ireland should be remembered. It's interesting, your book, even the subtitle Century of Division, it makes the case that, in a way, over that hundred years, Northern Ireland has never worked.
2: No, it hasn't. I mean, I think, I think you, you would struggle to pull any thread together that, that said, look, this was either a good idea um, or even if it wasn't a great idea to begin with, it got a lot better, and, and people were broadly happy and satisfied, and all the rest of it. That, it was never like that. Northern Ireland has never worked. It's always been it's always been a a, um, a troubled enclave, uh, to put it mildly. Um, the place is, is of course created um, in 1921 as a sectarian fief. I mean, there's no other way of describing what happened. Um, obviously, locking in that Protestant Unionist ascendancy um, as Britain hottailed it out of the rest of Ireland because it couldn't govern the place. Um, You know, this is a major national humiliation for the British Empire at the height of its pomp to be basically kicked out of Ireland um, except for the enclave that it creates for for, for the loyal um, garrison um, population um, as, as, as as a back foot compromise as it's literally um disappearing across the other side of the Irish Sea. So this, this this is a major moment in twentieth in century history. It shows the fallibility of 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 an empire. And of course so many other um, national liberation movements across the world um drew inspiration from, from from those Irish revolutionary years um as well. But but what is left was 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 a sectarian state where where for Catholic nationalists you, you they were treated as second class citizens. There's lots and lots of very good books written about this, lots and lots of evidence um, to sustain this as, as a criticism. Um, it's built as a police state. It's built as a sectarian thief. Um, it's it's a brooding place between the early 1920s right the way through to the mid-1960s. You know, the events of those, the, the, the creation of Northern Ireland between, you know, kind of 1921 to 1923. You know, some horrendous events took place, uh, particularly in Belfast, the pogroms, the violence. Um, the state sponsored violence as, as as well i mean you know multiple examples of atrocities carried out by uh, the nascent um, r u c um you know so you know it, it was a terrible time and a troubled time and that was pretty much um how it was how it was created and then how it carried on. it waxed and waned obviously through those those kind of those kind of post war years and and then of course, you get the the generation that you know a couple of generations on that you know the kind of young Catholic nationalists infused with the Um, The dynamism and and, and the sense of optimism of the civil rights movement from America, um, who are trying to reform the system, trying to reform the place. They're not revolutionary. They're not trying to rip Northern Ireland up from the roots. They're trying to improve the place by saying, give us a fair shake in terms of housing, in terms of jobs and in terms of of, of, of addressing discrimination and perfectly legitimate criticisms. Um, And this, you know, for their troubles, they are literally beaten off the streets. Um, by, by the RUC. Stormont, Will Brook, no compromise. Um, Terence O'Neill, who, who, who you know, as, as Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, I mean, it's, it's instructive looking at this from from, a, from, a, from this side of the Irish Sea, that when you talk about the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, we, we're used to talking about the First Minister now of Scotland or the First Minister of Wales or Metro mayors and, and, and what have you in this country. But, you know, for 50 years, Northern Ireland had its own Prime Minister. It had its own cabinet. It had its own parliament. Um, and because um, this was regarded as a, a devolved reserved matter, uh, British members of Parliament couldn't ask questions in the House of Commons about goings-on in Northern Ireland. So again, this is where the whole thing creeps up on the British public. Um, it, it explodes in, in, into, into um, a consciousness in, in dramatic fashion from the, from the mid-1960s onwards. But it's laid dormant as a problem, as, as I say, a brooding stalemate for, for kind of 50 years before that. And at this point... You know these civil, these civil rights demonstrators trying to reform the system, you know, are beaten and beaten to a pulp. And and that moment where Stormont could have reached out and said, look, actually, you know, we've lasted 50 years, we can be a bit more generous now to towards Catholic nationalist aspirations. Uh, we don't need to command and control this place with quite the vigour that we have done. Uh, we can we can incorporate some of these these perfectly reasonable demands. They didn't do that. And Terence O'Neill. Um, as a prime minister there, and Terence O'Neill is, is kind of this curious figure as, as a, um, you know, very much a one-nation British Conservative uh, type politician, slightly outside of the Unionist mould, a bit more aristocratic. Um, you know, Terence O'Neill gets a lot of this. He gets a lot of what has to happen, but he just is not strong enough to overcome the kind of inertia and the sectarianism of, of Unionist politics at that time. And as a result of that, you know, he's right in some of the things he wants to do, but he just cannot press the accelerator hard enough, fast enough. And again, for me, one of the curiosities often of Irish history is, that, you know, in, in that famous, um, I think Marx, <laughs> the, the, the decades where nothing happens and days when decades happen, that it, within a few short years, we've moved from potentially being able to fix some of the, the anomalies of Northern Ireland, some of the problems with it, to, to incorporate um, Catholic nationalist aspirations. To the point where, by you know, by 1970, by 1971, you know, all, all bets are off. By 1972, we've had Bloody Sunday and we've had internment, and that is it. Um, but there was a moment where, with a surer political touch, both from O'Neill um, as Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, but also from the British government and the British cabinet and Westminster more broadly, a sure touch at that point, being very clear that these demands are legitimate and they better be enacted. Um, that might have averted things. And for me, you know, this century of division is is a series of missed opportunities to do the right thing and to do the decent thing. Um, And the smart thing, the smart thing for unionists then is the smart thing for unionists today, which is to give ground on things which are not, you know, do or die, um, to make some sensible concessions to prolong um, the lifespan of Northern Ireland, because it is finite.
0: Well, this is an excellent exploration of all of those missed opportunities. The book is called What a Bloody Awful Country: Northern Ireland's Century of Division. It's published in hardback by Biteback Publishing. The author is Kevin Marr, and Kevin, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Delighted. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking History, History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. On the 1st of June, 1921, at the height of Ireland's War of Independence, a cycling patrol of members of the RIC was ambushed by members of the IRA at Ballymacandy, between Milltown and Castlemaine in County Kerry. After an hour of fighting, four police officers lay dead and another died a day later, among them a father of nine children. And the story has now been told in a new book, Bally McKenzie, The Story of a Kerry Ambush. It's published in paperback by Marion Press. The author is Owen O'Shea. And Owen, you're very welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, Patrick. Good to talk to you.
0: Can you tell us about the ambush? Who was involved in it on the IRA side? And how controversial was it in Kerry at the time?
3: It's probably... um one of the lesser known incidents of the war of independence in Kerry and that was part of my motivation in in researching and writing about it um apart from the fact that I, I grew up quite close to the, the the site of the ambush um it came just uh, about 6 weeks before the end of uh, the war of independence um on the 1st of June as you say which was which was only about 6 weeks before the truce um and as such it it it, it was one of the last uh, major engagements if you like of of the conflict in Kerry and um, it was something, I suppose, that had been um, culminating for, for for a number of months in terms of other incidents and reprisals in the Greater Mid Kerry area. Uh, but the the ambush itself um, involved members of the Kerry Number no. One and Kerry Number no. Two uh, brigades of the the IRA who had been uh, plotting, if you like, an, an attack of that nature for several weeks. Um, in advance, and those who were, if you like, the victims of the ambush or are those on the other side. Uh, in terms of the Crown forces, were uh, members of the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, but also members of the of the Black and Tans. So the, the cycle patrol which you refer to uh, comprised members of both the RIC and uh, and the Black and Tans, and, and they came under attack, uh, as you say, on the afternoon of. of uh, of the 1st of June 1921.
0: And there seemed to be an issue in terms of how people reacted. For example, uh, the 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 ambush was condemned from the pulpit.
3: It was uh the the ambush um led to the deaths of five um, members of the Crown forces um it, it, two RIC and, and and three Black and Tans and um I suppose what what was um quite common at the time is 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 that the the uh, the uh deaths of this nature were met with condemnation from from on high and uh, even at some of the funerals in, in subsequent days the uh the the assailants uh, those in the IRA who were the the parishioners after all of of the local clergy uh, were 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 messed with, with uh, condemnation and um, I suppose part of the um part of the extra um if you like uh, personal or, or, or family um tragedy or sadness of the, of the incident is that one of those uh, who was killed was uh was uh, the father of nine children, and uh, he lived in the village of Milltown, uh, which is where many of those who attacked him uh, were um, were um, um, were living at the time. Indeed, and he had lived there for a number of years. He was uh, he was uh, an RIC officer called James Colley, who grew up in Sligo, but but lived there with his children, who were growing up and going to school in the locality. Um, and that, I suppose, if you like, highlights the um how personal and how up close and and how um how bitter this this conflict had become by the, by the end of the war of independence that that even those who were living in their their own communities um became so vulnerable to attack by the IRA and how the RIC if you like by by that time had become uh, synonymous with the worst excesses of of um of the Black and Tans and, and the Auxiliaries and their Reign of Terror, I suppose, through through twenty and twenty one in, in Ireland and in Kerry as well.
0: Talk to me about the the British reaction against Dr. Daniel Sheehan, who was a Kerry doctor who who tried to treat the the dying men, and they certainly were very unhappy with uh, with what he did and thought uh, he he had bought the job.
3: That's right. Well, the, the local doctor was was Dr. Dan Sheehan. Uh, his father had actually been a a, a Parnellite MP uh, back back in the day, but he was also happened to be the medical officer of the of the local IRA brigade. But um, as the local doctor, he was called to the scene of the ambush and was was asked to tend to the five uh, wounded uh, men. Uh, one of uh, four of them died um, uh, died uh, quite immediately or quickly. One of them. Um, uh, survived uh, overnight and and didn't die until the following day um so the um in the subsequent inquiry which was held in in Tralee a few days after the ambush um the doctor came in for criticism for uh, allegedly failing to provide adequate medical care to Uh, John Stratton McCormack, who was uh, a member of the Black and Tans and who had been critically injured and effectively lay lay dying in a cottage overnight near the site of the ambush. Um, And Dr. Sheehan gave evidence at the inquiry that he had made several attempts to uh, render medical aid to to the wounded man and was was repeatedly reassured that an ambulance or, or at least medical help was on its way. But um, the one of the interesting findings I think is that the British or the, the British military inquiry into the incident attempted to, to blame him effectively for, for um for uh John Stratton McCormack's death, uh, when in fact I, I would suggest that it was it was the military strategy of of, uh, of the Crown Forces at the time and the vulnerability of those Crown Forces to to ambushes, which was really um, uh, the issue, rather than um, whether medical aid was provided. But I, I suppose that's an interesting element to the story, and, and it's interesting how those uh, different relationships—you know—a local doctor who was. Uh, the medical officer for the the, uh, the local IRA brigade. Did what he said all he could was was effectively tending to to um, to the enemy forces. So it's, there's there are those interesting and complex relationships, I suppose, beneath the beneath the story of the ambush itself.
0: And finally, we also get an interesting insight into the role of the women of Amon because that's a part of the story that's very often left out.
3: Indeed, I I, I think um, as as is now being appreciated to a greater extent that the, the role and involvement of the members of Khamen-Aman, uh is is now coming to the fore, and that's thanks, I would argue, in 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 the most part uh, or for the most part to the publication of uh, very large quantities of pension applications from these women which are now available uh, through the military archives and available online uh, through militaryarchives.ie and they give us a sense that that the members of Common were much more than just women who looked after IRA men and fed and clothed them and carried messages and so on, they were often um, involved in tasks that, which put themselves at great personal danger. Um, they were hiding guns and ammunition, hiding bombs. Uh, they were often um, beaten and abused by police and Crown forces. Uh, in the case of Bally McCandy, they were involved in, in intelligence work and other similar ambushes. Um, so I would suggest that uh, a lot of the, um, the stories of the women who were involved in this revolutionary period um, uh, heretofore hasn't really been appreciated but now thanks to the availability and accessible, accessibility of the, of the primary source material we, we have a better understanding of uh, how vitally important the role of Kamin was in, in, um, in this entire period.
0: Very good, well it's a fascinating story. It's Bally McCandy, The Story of a Kerry Ambush. The book is published in paperback by Marion Press. The author is Owen O'Shea. Owen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you Patrick. Nice to talk to you. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking History. History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book chronicles one of the most spectacular art appropriation campaigns in history and in doing so sheds new light on the complex origins of what was once called the Musée Napoleon, now known as the Louvre. The book is called Napoleon's Plunder and the Theft of Veronese's Feast. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson. The author is Cynthia Saltzman. And Cynthia, you're very welcome to the show tonight.
4: Thank you so much, Patrick. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: It's a fascinating story and uh, this really exciting look at the plundering that Napoleon was involved in. Where did you get this idea for the book and why did you decide to centre it on the stealing of the wedding feast at Cana, this very famous piece of art?
4: Well, I had the idea for the book, really. um, I've written a lot about the collecting of art, the migration of art and the way that is driven by politics, economics and taste. And when I was writing an earlier book about the Van Gogh portrait of Dr. Gachet, part of its history involved the Nazi art plundering, and I realized that Napoleon's art plundering, which had, was huge and set a precedent, would be a fascinating subject. And then centering um, the story on Veronese's wedding feast, first of all, the I should say, um, the painting hangs today in the Louvre, across from the Mona Lisa, so it shows how important it has always been to the French. And it's an absolutely fabulous Renaissance masterpiece painted in 1563 by Paolo Veronese to cover the entire wall of the refectory of the Monastery of San Giorgio Maggiore in Venice, a very central and important, rich Benedictine monastery. And then the French tore this painting down from the wall in 1797, shipped it to France, and put it up at the Louvre. And paradoxically, um, plundering of art is a terrible thing, but in this complicated story, this Venetian painting became an inspiration and a model for some of the greatest painters in France.
0: And I'm interested in why Napoleon was doing this. Was he a great art lover who wanted beautiful paintings and artworks uh, in Paris for him and the, 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 the French people to see? Was it just that he wanted the glories of, of, of France uh, to, be, to be part of his empire and therefore there was an element of pride or ego involved? Or what was that actually going on here?
4: Well, he certainly was no connoisseur of art. He was no esthete, and yet I think he completely understood the power of art. And he understood, above all, that the French kings had for centuries used art and architecture to aggrandize themselves, to build the image of their political power. And he would do the same. And when he arrives in Italy, the fascinating thing is he's on his very first campaign, 1796. He's only 26. He's there just a few weeks, and he says... He writes to the French ambassador in Genoa, send me a list of paintings, sculpture, cabinets of curiosities. And then he, he mentions various cities that he plans, or in states he plans to conquer, Parma, Modena, Bologna. And he goes ahead and does that and then orders them to turn over works of art. And he puts these works of art into the terms of his peace treaties. So he very much understands the power of art.
0: A fascinating dimension to the story is the establishment of this commission of scientists and, and artists. So not just artists, but also these scientists to to advise and choose on 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 what works to take back from Italy. That's an incredible dimension to the story as well.
4: Yes, and I think it's wonderful. I really realized that the reason that they had chose they put at the head of the commission these scientists, two of the greatest scientists in France, Claude Berthollet, a chemist and Gaspar Mange, a mathematician, was really because the French, despite their rhetoric, um, realized that this plundering of the art of Italy was incredibly controversial. And by putting these internationally famous scientists at the head of the commission, they were trying, I think, to link uh, their plundering to the aims of the Enlightenment.
0: Very interesting. And that brings us to, I suppose, the back to the painting and its treatment during all of these things, because at one point it was cut in two. And that seems to be after it even arrived in Paris, that why did these things happen to it?
4: In the beginning, the first damage they did was when they pulled it down from the wall of the monastery, and there were it had been attached to the wall with three rows of nails, each one hundred and twenty nails. And so they, that caught when they pulled it down it caused hundred three over 360 holes um, to be ripped in, in the picture which they had to damage. They cut it in two when it got to the Louvre because um, the weakest part or the most vulnerable part of an old master picture is the fabric on which it's painted and they re- they thought that in order to they needed to strengthen the canvas, which was over 200 years old and they do this by putting a new canvas on the back of the old. Then they decided it was too big to do this lining process, it's a very difficult process, and they pulled, the painting had been made of six strips of linen sewn together in the 16th century, and they pulled one of those seams apart, but virtually it was the same as um, cutting the canvas in two, and then they put those two different parts on two separate stretchers. And they hung. They they did this. These paint the painting. It, the seam was cut horizontally, so they put one painting above another, and they had to then cover that gap between them with putty and paint. In the middle of the 19th century, and around the, in the 1850s, they lined the painting again, and on one single piece of canvas. Cynthia, I wonder
0: what is the status then of these artworks today? Are there demands for them to be returned uh, to the to the countries where they were taken from? I know that it's different political entities now. You don't have uh, it; it's very different in Verona. Now, but are there demands for them to be repatriated, or are people happy to have them still in the Louvre?
4: What an excellent question! I'm not aware of um, efforts to return the art that Napoleon plundered at the end of the, when after he was defeated by Wellington and the allies at Waterloo, they, um, the Duke of Wellington and the allies came to Paris and they demanded that the French return all the works of art that Napoleon had plundered. And yet um, of about 250 paintings they had taken from Italy, only about half of them went back. And of course the wedding feast of Cana um, did not go back. I think um, what's fascinating is in Venice today they have some created something of a compromise, I think, because the Chini Foundation that owns San Giorgio Maggiore um, restored the refectory that had been designed by Palladio, and then they created a digital image, a full-scale digital image of this painting, and they put it at the on the end wall where it was originally placed. And so you get a sense of what the painting looked like when Veronese had painted it there.
0: Well, it's an absolutely brilliant story and you get an insight into the politics, the military history of the period, uh, as well as uh, this incredible art history story. The book is called Napoleon's Plunder and the Theft of Veronese's Feast. The book is published in hardback by Thames and Hudson, the author, Cynthia Solzman. And Cynthia, thanks so much for joining us tonight.
4: Thank you, Patrick.
0: We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this talking history history on news talk Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the volatile true love story of literary icons Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. And I'm delighted to welcome to the show Connie Palman who has just written a brilliant new novel Your Story, My Story, a novel it's published in paperback by Amazon Crossing and it tells the story of that relationship from the point of view of Ted Hughes in his own uncompromising voice. Connie, you're very welcome to the show.
5: Thank you so much, Patrick.
0: It's fascinating because uh, Hughes is normally cast as the Villain in this story and the cause of Sylvia Plath's suicide and his infidelity is blamed for so much and it's very interesting to look at things from from his perspective.
5: Yes, but it was a a great uh, uh, that was my challenge to do so because I have I read all those biographies on Sylvia Plath and I was wondering how such a big love story it's it's one of our. Most the biggest love stories in literature, how it could end like that with a suicide, and how the biographies could point their fingers only to tattoos. I mean, you don't have a love life that huge if you if there's only one person in the in the love that is making faults and is making is 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 well is. To blame for uh, for a breakup, so I tried to 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 well to change the point of view, and I began to read everything. I got uh, the essays of Ted Hughes, his poems, um, the only biography that was available then by Elaine Feinstein, and I thought, but this is a very tender, big. Big guy, but a very tender guy, who is um, coming very near to nature's cruelty, but who isn't a cruel person himself. Um, that is so often a mistake uh, when, when people read poetry, then, and they read it when they read that that someone understands the cruelty of nature, that we have to deal with a cruel person, which is. Uh, practically the opposite. I think Ted Hughes was a very tender person who was fascinated by good and evil, which to be honest uh, practically every writer is. So I, with my novel I, I chose to get the point of view of Ted Hughes because I wanted to understand not only him better but the law for Sylvia Plath better, because to me, very often Sylvia Plath also uh, seemed a uh, rather, well, manipulative, um, uh, also very funny and very intelligent and very great poet, but also manipulative and, 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 and rather difficult person.
0: And in the way an historian will provide an interpretation of the past based on, on the evidence and the research, this is, is, is also a very interesting interpretation based on your research. And did you find that there was ever a challenge between uh, what you had evidence for and what your own instincts or feelings perhaps were, were suggesting might have been possible? Or, or at, at what point did your own imagination come into it?
5: Well, to be honest, this is the most difficult question you can ask someone who's writing a novel on, on a historical figure. Um, you have to imagine everything, and at the same time, you have a lot of facts. But facts are nothing. Facts without interpretation are dead. So everything, every story, even a story of if you're in your own life, starts with a lot of imagination you can say what he had a heart attack you know nothing Uh, you, you know maybe he had a bad heart if you say he had a heart attack after his wife left him that's when a story starts I mean a writer is the person who who doesn't make things up but who is trying to fill in those facts with a lot of of feeling and understanding and with stories. So what did I imagine? I imagined that youth being very much in love with a very fascinating woman, and I had all the facts that all the biographers had, and, 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 well, what did I make up? Sometimes I made up or I thought of how a conversation could have been. I haven't been fantasizing or making things up that much I only arranged facts different than a biographer should do and and I'm not bound to the truth biographers are bound to but um, in, but at the same time I try to be as truthful as I could so I didn't make
0: up facts and you also had to deal with some personal tragedy during the writing of the book and my condolences on that and I wonder did that the death of your husband help you to understand the grief of the Ted Hughes was, was, was experiencing Oh
5: most certainly I, most certainly uh, but also the grief of um, Sylvia Plath as a young woman I mean if you if you look at her story of, of uh, being uh, of a that, that, that her father died when she was nine year old. And I know for certain that grief oh, and we mourn the people we loved, that that is a, a, a big reason for our uh, our psychic being unhealthy. Uh, of course, I understood how Ted Hughes suffered from this huge shock that, that his... his his wife took her own life and I know what mourning is, but there is, and, and, and of course I could write a book, I could write about a mourning that used because I lost my husband. Uh, I lost both my husbands, but uh, I didn't kill them, by the way. It may sound like that, but um, so yes, of course, I know what mourning is, but I, I have to add that, that I also know that there is something in the, history of of Sylvia Plath um, that I think she has been mourning all her life and that's why she got so attached to this also fatherly a man that Ted Hughes was and losing him was like a feeling all that mourning she had for her father again and being left alone again and being desperate so there's a lot of understanding of the mourning process in my your story my story in my novel,
0: yes. And finally, why do you think the public has, has this enduring fascination with the story of their marriage and their relationship? Is it, is it because of the way it ended in, in such a, a horrible tragedy or is it because they had such such profound highs and then such horrible lows that what is it about uh, the relationship that continues to, to fascinate and, and even obsess people?
5: Mostly goes for Sylvia Plath because, and I, I'm, I'm, well, I think two poets that good, you don't have a lot of marriages in in literature with two poets of this quality, of those they were both so talented, and at the same time we have this this wonderful opposite America marries England. Uh, the typical England poet who writes about nature, who writes about the Moors, who has this totally other fantasy, totally other um, imagination, totally other world of images, marries this very, very American girl who was obsessed with Marilyn Monroe, who was obsessed with the marriage between Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller? Who was Mickey Mouse? Who was Disney? Who was money? Who was earning? Who was so? There's. It's. It's also America, England. It's. It's two big talents. It's a big. It's a great love story, and and of course the the end, the suicide, the the. Re- and the repetition of the suicide of of the woman, uh, Ted Hughes fell in love with Aisha Wevel. It's all, well, it's almost
0: soap. Okay, well Connie thank you so much for joining us tonight it's a mesmerising book a really, thank you a, a really inventive novel Your Story My Story a novel published in paperback by Amazon Crossing the author Connie Palman and Connie thank you so much for joining us tonight
5: thank you for having me
0: and that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History my thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together Susan Cattle my producer and Peter Malloy on sound well next Sunday is St Stephen's Day we'll be playing you back our show on that great literary giant john steinbeck but in the meantime have an absolutely wonderful and peaceful christmas hope all your wishes and dreams come true we'll be with you in the weeks and days and months and years ahead so happy christmas from all of us here at talking history on news talk we've been talking history good night
2: talking history
0: history on news talk